The English poet John Donne wrote a wonderful poem in the early 1600s called A Nocturnal Upon St. Lucy's Day. It begins like this. Tis the year's midnight and it is the days. Lucy, who scarce seven hours herself unmasks. The sun is spent and now his flasks send forth light squibs, no constant rays. The world's whole sap is sunk. And here we are, nearly at the longest night in this difficult year. St. Lucy's Day, or the Feast of St. Lucia, is December the 13th. In Dunn's time, because he was using a different calendar, the 13th was also the darkest day of the year. For us in the Northern Hemisphere, we'll have to wait a little longer for the solstice and the wonderful moment when we begin the long, slow climb towards the light again. I am well aware that my friends in the Southern Hemisphere are moving into glorious midsummer. But for the rest of us, it's time to pull the curtains, stoke the fire, draw up a chair and enjoy a story that comes out of the beginnings of history and continues right up until today. Welcome to the last episode in this series of podcasts from Haptic and Hue, which looks at textiles of all kinds down the centuries and thinks about the role they play in our lives and the hidden hands that make them. I'm Jo Andrews, I'm a hand weaver and collector of stories about cloth. Haptic means the feel of something and Hue describes the pure spectrum of colours. This tale is about how ideas of style and changing fashions were communicated before printed drawings, photographs, moving pictures and social media made it easy. It follows the fate of a mannequin or doll-like figure called Pandora through the firelight of history. A doll, you say, surely not. But I think her story goes to the heart of why clothes are important and what they say about us as people, what we value, how we express power, status, gender, and the social and moral restrictions placed on us by our own age. Christine Chichinska, a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, says in a lovely TED talk she gave, things make us as much as we make them. Fashion is part of the process by which the unequal distribution of power within society is constructed, maintained and experienced. But fashion can also be used to challenge and contest one's position in society. It's hard to know exactly when this story begins. I suspect that way back when we wore skins before cloth was invented, there would have been a cool way of wearing the stuff. If it was over that shoulder, then you were behind the times. But if it was done like this, with the belt tied like so, then that was hip. I'm not sure anyone is an expert on Neanderthal fashion, but I bet they had ways of dressing that told others if you were male or female, married or single, successful or not. Spinning forwards, we do know that a small human figure made of wood was found in Tutankhamun's tomb 
dating from 1300 BC. It was close to his clothing chest, and academics believe that this may be one of the first fashion mannequins. They were invented as an elegant solution to the problem of how to transmit changing ideas about style and fashion in a world where pictures could not easily be transmitted. I've often wondered why some of the more extreme styles of dress, like the vast panniers of the Baroque era that made it impossible for women to pass through a door or even sit down, or the bustles of Victorian times. How did they become fashionable? Why did women start to wear them? Or for that matter, why did men move from wearing a slash doublet and codpiece to a grey suit and tie? Part of the answer lies with these miniature figures. They were Europe's way of spreading new ideas about clothes and creating demand for them at a time when travel was difficult and fraught with danger. These Pandora dolls, as we see them, if we're looking at it through a fashion point of view, yes, they're very, very important. Before the advent of magazines or fashion illustrations or fashion plates, these little Pandora dolls were used to spread fashion throughout Europe and then across the Atlantic to America and then throughout the colonies. Fashion merchants uh, would make up dresses in miniature and they would go through very long discussions with their clients about which ribbon to use, which lace to use, which buttons to use, which fabrics to use and which styles overall to use as well. Um, and because at that time everything was made by hand or made with kind of, you know, the, the best of materials, uh, they were made in miniature first because it was cost, it was cost effective. Um, it just wasn't an option for people to make up a, a full size version and then for the client to say, no, thanks, I, I want that in blue or I want that in pink. <laughs> Uh, when, you know, when lace is made by hand, um, you need to make sure that your customer is going to agree with the lace that you're, going, that you're proposing to use. Rebecca Devani is an embroiderer and textile educator based in Paris. She's been tracking Pandora mannequins and in particular their role in helping to establish Paris as the first centre for fashion and style. We think of this as a relatively recent development, something that happened in the last 250 years. But the small Pandora figures tell us that it goes back much further than that. These Pandora dolls said that they were used from the Middle Ages and that they had a really important place between the royal courts in Europe. So the Queen of France would send a gift of these dolls to say the Queen of England and generally once the dresses were made in miniature by the dressmaker when the client was happy the queen or princess or whoever it was it would be made in life size and then once it, the dresses had been worn in court in the french court then those miniature dolls could be sent around the royal courts of europe in germany and italy and spain and england and so forth the first written records of these wooden or wax figures dates back to the 1300s. French court records show us that in 1321, the French Queen sent fashion mannequins as a gift to the Queen of England. 
And then again in 1396, the court tailor of France, Roger de Varennes, made a miniature wardrobe to be sent by Queen Isabel of Bavaria to the Queen of England as an early form of diplomacy. We know that Mary, Queen of Scots, who was brought up in Paris, had a set of Pandora figures, and that she and her ladies-in-waiting, the four Marys, dressed them in different costumes while they were in Scotland. When we think of Mary, Queen of Scots, and her particular grace that comes down the centuries, she's wearing black velvet and white lace. This is how she chose to be painted, and how she wished to be seen and her mannequins played a central role in how she and her ladies-in-waiting worked this out. Think, too, of Elizabeth I of England, red-headed, in magnificently embroidered costumes in russet colours studded with jewels, huge sleeves, lace ruff, and the story of the Pandora mannequins makes you realise that the royal courts of Europe used ideas of fashion to project their majesty, to elevate themselves above the people, and to help their subjects understand that they were queens to be served and obeyed, which at that time was a difficult thing for a woman to pull off. The clothing was a central part of their display of power. At that time, fashion uh, and everything that went with it, fabric, lace, ribbon, embroidery, all the undergarments, and so on and so forth, they were hugely important to the French economy. And I think it was Jean-Baptiste Colbert, the Minister of Finance in the 17th century, declared that fashion is to France what the gold mines of Peru are to Spain. Perhaps because of their association with royalty, the little figures always seemed exclusive and desirable. Their heyday came in the 18th and early 19th century as transport improved, aristocratic courts across Europe multiplied and tailors around the world began to order their own transportable mannequins to showcase their wares. Men and women became fascinated by fashion for the first time and especially in England, far larger numbers could afford it as a prosperous, mercantile class emerged. This was the start of the fashion retail market. Every detail was perfectly made for the miniature mannequins, from the underwear to his or her hair and hats. Like your hairstyle was extremely important and hair, like your coiffe or your coiffeur, was made of a huge amount of there was a lot of artifice went into it. <laughs> it wasn't all your own hair and hairstyles could be built up and up and up with uh, wigs and things like that. So the dolls would also have these beautiful hairstyles and um, they'd have beautiful shoes, they'd have beautiful jewellery, everything was communicated and they would also at times have beautiful hats because in certain occasions you would be showing off your hairstyle, but in other occasions you would be showing off your hat. The more I look at Pandora mannequins and their travels, the more they seem to skitter across the stage of history. You glimpse them out of the corner of your eye, but never quite see them full on. 
Perhaps because it's hard for us now to understand the fascination people had for them and the joy with which the news that a new set of mannequins had arrived in town would be greeted. It wasn't just tea that the ships in Boston Harbour were carrying in 1773, which sparked the American Revolution. There was also a set of Pandora dolls on board too, or as they were known in America, French babies. In the wars between Britain and France at the start of the 18th century, the mannequins were exempt from trade embargoes, given a so-called inviable passport and a sort of cavalry escort, and despite war, continued their journeys from Paris to London and beyond without hindrance. Gradually, as the 19th century progressed, the mannequins were replaced by cheaply published magazines with coloured fashion plates, and as the 20th century arrived, the plates were replaced by photographs. And by rights, that should have been the end of the little mannequins. But it wasn't. Pandora figures refused to die, and they have gone on to have several more lives. Part of their power lies in the way they play on our imagination, our hopes and aspirations, our fantasies that clothes will make us somehow different, more attractive, more successful and seem wealthier. In 1945, Paris, like the rest of Europe, needed some of that. It was destitute after five and a half years of war. To raise morale, to show the French themselves that they were still a capable nation with skills and style. And to raise funds for humanitarian relief, a new set of Pandora mannequins was created to send round the world. Over 50 French couturiers took part, and they must have raided their pre-war fabric stashes, no doubt secreted away during the occupation to fit out more than 200 small wire figures, which were arranged in a series of tableaux called Le Théâtre de la Mode, the theatre of fashion. It was important for the French public to see after four years of occupation that couture still existed and that it's, and it had not lost its creativity or its fine workmanship. They weren't necessarily created as a commercial advertisement by the French fashion industry, but they were more about making a statement about the ongoing creativity and workmanship that was present there in Paris. The sets and the mannequins illustrated the links between the worlds of art and fashion, which had been something that had been going on in Paris since early in the 20th century. And that's why some preeminent stage designers and artists had been hired to create the sets. One of the really important things about the mannequins, they were being made in 1945 and 1946, is that they established the link between pre-war and wartime fashions and Christian Dior's new look that changed everything in 1947. And the last one, and I think this is extremely important, is what the Teatro de la Mode as it exists now is, is a collection of 172 outfits from 52 fashion houses all from a single season, and that's 
you know, doesn't really exist in any other collection. That's Steve Graff, curator of art at Maryhill Museum of Art in Washington State. High above the Columbia River, about 100 miles east of Portland, Oregon. He's an expert in this post-war collection of Pandora mannequins. They were designed by a woman named Elian Bonnebel, who was a pretty well-known illustrator in Paris. And at the time of uh, the Théâtre de la Mode uh, was conceived in 1945, she was working for Nina Ricci's fashion house, and she had recently designed its logo. And according to the 1946 uh, catalog, so that would have been the New York catalog, she was thinking of an of an outline sketch, and then she went from that to transforming that idea into three-dimensional space, and that would suggest then that you could use wire to create a body with a plaster head that was light and and idealized, let's say, and that they could be created to have different postures that then would work well with the fashions that were on them. And then the next step in the process, she had been working and worked in the future with a pair of sculptor named Jean Saint-Martin, who had himself been involved in creating a different kind of wire mannequin and he was the person in his studio, in his apartment, who then made all of the mannequins out of wire. He shaped the wire, twisted the wire, and then soldered it. But I sure would have loved to have seen a photo of his interior space where there's dozens and dozens of them completed. The heads were made by a uh, Spanish sculptor, Catalan, sculptor named Jean Ribault, uh, who was known for sort of graceful, slender figure forms, and he's the person who made all of the heads. So each head is unique, as is each mannequin. Each mannequin is just 27 inches high, around 70 centimetres. But despite their make-do-and-mend genesis, they are full of life and ingenuity. Each figure has its own character and way of standing. Each stitch is perfect, every fold on the tiny wire shapes precisely executed. And they were dressed in millions of dollars worth of jewellery. The important thing about the mannequins, interesting, and, and it's something I have to keep reminding myself because I get carried away with the story, that they were made to benefit France in general, and and their travel throughout Europe and North America was to to help fund French relief. The fashion designer Lucien Lelong, who was president of the organization of fashion houses, wrote an introduction in the 1945 catalog that accompanied the London exhibition, and what he said in the introduction is that the Théâtre de la Mode was not intended to represent luxury or lavish use of materials, but it was instead a proof of ingenuity and good taste. So I would say Teatro Delamo did exactly what it was intended to do. The mannequins went to London, Leeds, Stockholm, 
Copenhagen and Barcelona, and then they were sent to New York, and lastly to be exhibited in San Francisco. And then they were almost lost from view. No one in Europe was quite sure what had happened to them. The jewellery was returned to France because it had maybe a $2 million total value. And then the mannequins and the fashions were stored in the San Francisco City of Paris department store, appropriately. In 1950, the head of the department store, at the encouragement of a San Francisco philanthropist named Alma de Bretville Spreckles, who is also considered one of Mary Hill Museum of Art's four patrons, she encouraged Mr. Verdier to get together with the director of Mary Hill Museum of Art. They had a luncheon in San Francisco and talked about the collection coming to Mary Hill. The museum's director, Clifford Dolph, returned home, and this was a, in 1950, and didn't hear anything for two years. And then in 1952, in the spring, in March, more than 80 cases with their original label still attached arrived at the museum but the cases only contain the mannequins and the fashions. The sets somewhere along the way had been lost. The sets were eventually recreated in Paris and the Pandora mannequins were reunited with their proper settings. There are 172 of the original mannequins in Washington State, a long way from home, but carefully looked after. Steve Graff says different types of visitors come to see them. We have neophytes, people who don't know anything about them, who kind of are wowed by, wow, this is strange. Uh, I thought the location of this museum was strange already, and now I'm really convinced things are strange here. That seems to be the majority of the people. We also have people who make the pilgrimage specifically to see the sets and the fashions. And some people will do that every two years as they rotate on a view. And then we have a third set uh, where it, people come to see them because they think they're clever dolls. And just me personally, uh, I bristle a little bit when the, when the word doll is overused because it kind of diminishes the importance and the aesthetic value of the mannequin. These beautiful figures are now 75 years old. They have been round the world several times, not just before they got to Mary Hill, but on loan to other museums since then. And in 1988, back to Paris to be spruced up. But Steve believes they have worn well. Well, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, because imagine any 75-year-old clothes in your closet, some fabrics will wear well and others won't. And some that have been exposed to light on the corner of a shoulder will be faded a little bit. Happily, uh, for most of their lives, Tetra de la Mota has been stored in a museum environment with controlled humidity and controlled light and all of these other things. We have low light levels in the exhibitions. People complain about it all the time, but they are 75 years old. 
I think they look pretty well. The aspect of Teatro Delamo that's problematic for us right now, though, is is the mannequins themselves. Because if you imagine a wire that's a little lighter weight than a clothes hanger wire that's been soldered in dozens of places on a single mannequin, that's where the great fragility comes, is is in in the stability of the mannequins. And that's why they're handled so carefully and so infrequently, if we can, if we can, you know, make that happen. There are requests for them to travel all the time. But since 2015, the old ladies have rested in their home at Mary Hill. Too fragile now to be shifted across oceans anymore. Mary Hill Museum of Art will open an online exhibition of Le Tiart de la Mode in January. It will show new photographs and detail about the mannequins and the beautiful clothes they wear. Until this year, these figures would have been seen as a quirk of fate and history. But in 2020, a new disaster, the Covid pandemic, has seen the little mannequins rise again. People who are paying attention to fashion in 2020 appreciate that the 2020 runway shows were a bust because of the pandemic. As a result of that, uh, Dior's fall winter creations were showcased in a 15 minute long video that shows them. And that was in fact itself inspired by Teatro de la Mode. And what the video shows is a large crate with a drop-down front that has a bunch of miniature fashions in it and a couple of men carrying them around so that different women can see them and then order them in full size. It's easy to find. It's absolutely worth 15 minutes of anybody's time. And then there's another one that's really quite lovely. Uh, Moschino's Spring-Summer 2021 creations were presented in an online marionette show. It's just fantastic because you've got people sitting behind the runway that are miniature people, marionettes, and then you have marionettes in the Spring-Summer 2021 fashions going down the runway. I have posted links to both the Magical Dior show and the Moschino Marionette show in the Haptic and Hue page for this podcast. They're an enormously fun and imaginative response to a new time of crisis, one that very effectively references our pasts as well. Creating these new Pandora dolls has demanded a fantastically high level of technical skill to work in miniature. But the Dior collection was just, it was spellbinding. It was just so beautiful. It was just really stunning. And I don't like those, the people that make, that make those clothes on their mannequins are just, they're just wizards. They're absolute wizards. Um, to have the hands to be able to, to finish things perfectly like that was, I was thought it was insane. Sean Byrne works and lives in Paris. He has a very particular calling in the production of modern fashion collections. He is a maquettiste, which involves, yes, working with miniature figures, the descendants, if you like, of Pandora dolls. 
And one thing that's used very heavily in a lot of the haute couture houses in Paris, um, a lot of the ready to wear houses in Paris are these little guys called maquettes and they're, they're little small um, quarter size mannequins. You use your hands to create concepts with fabric. Um, so it's a very free flowing way of design. You take a piece of cloth and it might just be some calico or if you're working with like a stiffer fabric you might be taking a piece of kind of silk taffeta or some or something like that and you're pinning it onto the mannequin and you're allowing your hands to kind of just work with the form and the shape of this little mannequin and basically it kind of it it does your bidding for you in a way it 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 develops your concepts along with you it's almost like a for want of a better word i remember doing it for the first time and my professor said to me, you look like you've done this for a long time. So she said, this has, she said, this is where you need to go in fashion because this is what you're good at. And I was really pleased to hear that because I, when I started doing it, I didn't know if I was doing it right. I didn't know if I was doing it wrong. Um, but with, with, with working with the maquette, there's no real right or wrong way to do it. For someone who is a designer of clothes, this skill frees up your imagination and creativity. It's an approach that's only taught in France, particularly at the wonderfully named École de la Chambre Syndicale de la Couture Parisienne. You have the free skill to do it or you don't. Um, I think, because I've thought about it quite a lot, and I think it's basically just the way your mind thinks. And if you're not afraid of it, if you're not afraid of going outside the box, you're not thinking in millimetres and centimetres, you're thinking in a conceptual kind of way of doing things. If you have a mindset like that, it will work really well with you. And there's a strange alchemy to it because you come up with designs that you never, you physically could not make these designs up in your head. It has to be done on this mannequin. And it's just a pleasure that I've allowed, that I've had the opportunity to, to, to let it come into my life because it really gives me an awful lot of joy because even if I'm not working on anything to do with, like if, if I'm not working on a project or anything, you can just sit with that mannequin for an hour and just play around and all of a sudden you'll come up with kind of fantastic concepts that you'd never come up with with just pen and paper. Maquettes are used because they don't waste expensive fabric and because they set designers free to experiment in a way that flat pattern cutting doesn't. So a maquette is it's a quarter size mannequin. I'd say it's maybe two feet tall. It has little arms on it. It has its own little head and it's on a little dress stand. It's really, really important in French fashion. And it's been around for, I know, a very long time. For me as a fashion designer, I'd be lost without it because it's such a help. And I think with the little guy, the little one that I have, you can just develop um, concepts very quick. And you might have a scrap of fabric that would be like nearly ready for the bin because it's so small. But you can do something, you can do something with it on a maquette. Each fashion house will have a team of maquettistes working in-house, producing possibly hundreds of ideas each week. If you wanted to make volume in a gown, if you wanted to make volume in a sleeve, if you wanted, you know large billowing skirts, anything like that, a maquettiste would come in and they would be very quickly able to put together those concepts. If a, if, if a designer came in and said, today I want to look at necklines and I want to look at small collars with volume underneath them, they would give the maquettiste the brief and the maquettiste could go away then for the whole day or for a week or whatever. And they'd experiment with different volumes very, very quickly 
they could come up with a concept. And what's great about a maquettiste is you can put your little bolt of fabric on, on the arm of your mannequin and within maybe a minute, you'll know if a sleeve that you had in your head is working or not. You take the photo of that, you take your fabric off, you keep the same piece of fabric and you put it a different way. You put it upside down, you turn it around, you bring it up towards the neck, you bring your, your arm line towards the neck, you drop it down underneath. And it's a very quick concept because every two or three minutes you're seeing different shapes. So it's evolving constantly. Whereas with the larger mannequins, it's, it's a more, it's a cumbersome process. It's more, the larger mannequins are used pretty much for, you know, strict tailoring. Whereas the, the Maccatees, you get to play around with shapes and, you know, you can see your design come to life immediately. Uh, so they're just, they're so useful. Sean's own maquette, which he keeps in his apartment, is called Madame Fufu. He believes the miniature mannequins like her are integral to creativity in design. So even today, the fashion figure, the little Pandora mannequin, has his or her place in creating and designing what we wear. Sean says the maquette opens new doors for him. It sounds a little bit cheesy, but it brings my heart into the design. Fashion is a very solitary work, I find. Being a designer can be quite solitary, and working on garments can be a solitary task. But you nearly have someone with you when you have that, when you have that little mannequin, you know that it's nearly like you're working with it. It's helping you along the way. It's bringing itself into the situation. It's bringing itself into the concept. And to have that tool, because that's what it is for me, it's a tool that allows me to push my vision more. It allows, allows me to think outside the box and it just it pushes my fashion to, an, to a level that I could never achieve with flat pattern cutting, um, or with like fashion illustration or anything, this just has been has enabled me to take things to another level of design that I actually didn't think I had in me. In 1990, the celebrated Irish poet Ivan Boland wrote a poem called "The Shadow Doll." It was about the Irish tradition of the wedding dressmaker in Victorian times giving a bride a miniature doll dressed in a replica wedding dress as a keepsake. In this poem, the figure kept under glass is used as a motif of the memories of the wedding day and the family life that followed, but also expresses how women often experience marriage as constricting. Here it is, read by Rebecca Devani. They stitch blooms from ivory tull to hem the oyster gleam of the veil. They made hoops for the crinoline. Now, in summary and neatly sewn, a porcelain bride in an airless glamour, the shadow doll survives its occasion. Under glass, under wraps, it stays even now, after all, discreet about visits, fevers, quickenings and lusts. And just how, when she looked at the shell-toned spray of seed pearls, the bisque features, she could see herself, inside it all, holding less than real stephanotis, rose petals, never feeling satin rise and fall with the vows. I kept repeating on the night before, astray among the cards and wedding gifts, the coffee pots and the clocks, and the battered tan case full of cotton lace and tissue paper, pressing down, then pressing down again, and then locks. 
This episode of Haptic and Hugh was written, narrated, and edited by me, Joe Andrews. Many thanks to Rebecca Devani, textile educator, Steve Graff, curator of art at Mary Hill Museum of Art in Washington State, and the Paris-based fashion designer, Sean Byrne, for sharing their thoughts and their expertise with us. You can see pictures of Pandora dolls through the ages at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash listen, as well as the Dior and Moschino videos. And you can find show notes there. I provide a complete transcript of this podcast and a list of resources and background reading that you might enjoy. You can sign up there to get the Haptic and Hue newsletter. You'll also find blogs and other information about textiles and Haptic and Hue there. If you feel able to give this podcast a rating or even a review on your podcast provider, that would be wonderful. It increases the chances of others enjoying it, as well as making it more likely that I will make future series. I'm already planning a second series for next year, and if you have ideas for an episode, please do contact me at joe.andrews at hapticandhue.com. I'm going to leave you with a quote from that master of textile design and production, Alistair Morton who ran Edinburgh Weavers from the early 1930s to the 1960s and came through some hard times of his own. He says, The arts may seem frail and superficial activities when we are beset by more grim realities of life. But in the long run, I'm sure this is not so. Let us not forget that at all times the world has been coming to an end. Life has always been more dangerous, more fleeting, and yet the arts have persisted moulding our history. In the perspective of history, it is only the persisting ideas, the frail values of the arts that we have available to us to stand up against the brutalities of politics and commerce and the indifference of science. Thank you for your company. It has meant a great deal to me over these difficult months. Enjoy your making or just listening to the chatter of cloth. And I hope to reconnect with you next year.